Hello, and welcome to a podcast called The Mind Machine, where we talk about the relationship between people and technology. Specifically, we're presenting a series of conversations with researchers at the cutting edge of human factors and human-computer interaction. We'll be finding out about their work and ideas, their backgrounds and inspirations, and the implications of their research for society at large. This third episode of the Mind Machine podcast features a conversation with Professor Wendy Rogers from the University of Illinois. Now, Wendy is a human factor psychologist with a strong background in cognitive experimental psychology, and her primary research interest is the aging process, how it affects our cognitive capacities, our ability to learn, and specifically how we can design technology to support a process of healthy aging. And that's something, an area of technological development that everybody has a stake in. And with the development of things like smart homes and social robotics, it's an area that's absolutely on the cutting edge of human-computer interaction. Now, I caught up with Wendy in Berlin at the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society annual meeting of the European chapter, uh, where Wendy gave a keynote speech. This was back in October 2018. Now, as with all these conversations, they're very much done on the fly, where myself and my guests can find time and a quiet room. In this particular case, it was a little bit rushed, and listening back to the conversation, I think I'm probably talking a little bit too much, but it was uh, a really great chat. Uh, It was really good to hear Wendy talking about her career, a really thoughtful perspective on designing technology in a user-centered way for the older user, and the fascinating kind of social dynamics that occur when people interact with robots. So, I hope you enjoy listening to me. To begin with, I just uh, wanted to ask you a little bit about the conference. You, you enjoyed the conference? Oh, the conference has been wonderful. Yes, yeah. I always enjoy this meeting. Yeah. You've been here before, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I've been to... I, the first one I came to was when I was president of HFES. Yeah, and yeah. they invited me and uh, my husband, Dan Fisk, who yeah, yeah. was a former president of HFES. So both yeah, of us yeah. came to that meeting. You know, I think I remember being at the same meeting. Really? Was it, was it in Delft? It was Del- in Delft, Delft? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, I remember it. And... I'm always curi- a little bit curious, um, obviously HFES has chapters in the US as well, mm-hmm. uh, are those meetings similar to this sort of thing, are they similar oh, size? No, or? they're nowhere near as large. Oh really? Yeah, okay. so a lot of the local chapters do more um, informal events with people in their community and maybe partnering with student chapters. Okay, okay. There's a strong tradition, I think, at this particular meeting when I've been involved with it, of people presenting the work for the first time. Mm-hmm. I was sitting at dinner last night with someone who'd done a first paper the oh, day before. Wonderful. Uh, do you remember what that was like? My first paper? Oh, uh, yeah, how scary I that do, was. I do. Um, it was at Mid Central Ergonomics okay. at the University of Illinois, yeah. where I am now, oh. many years later. <laughs> and when I gave my job talk at the University of Illinois, I started with the slide from my very first presentation back in 1989. Wow. Yeah, yes. you I come, remember f- come full well. circle. Yeah, yeah, so that was fun. <laughs> I even remember what I was wearing because my mother brought me the dress that I could wear for my first presentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it is, you know, it, it is kind of like a big deal. Isn't oh, it, absolutely, the first time. absolutely. And the person was saying to me last night, oh, I was so nervous and stuff. And I said, you, 
you weren't at all. You've appeared fine, you know. But yeah, it's, it's getting through that. Getting, having the first one being a positive experience. Oh, absolutely. Really yeah, it's nice to yeah. have that memory. Yeah. So, like I said to you before, I was doing a little bit of homework on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took a quick look at your early papers. Um, now, like a lot of, I think a lot of us around that time, it looks to me like when you began your cognitive experimental psychology. Correct, was, yes, that's my background. Yeah. And where did you do your undergraduate? At uh, the time, it was called Southeastern Massachusetts University. It's okay. now part of the UMass system, so it's UMass Dartmouth. Okay. And did you go straight to PhD from graduating? I took a year off. Okay. Okay. Uh, and did you do PhD in the same place? No, I did my both my master's and my PhD at Georgia Institute oh, of Technology. Okay. okay. So what did you do your master's in? Also experimental psychology. Okay. Yep. Okay. So... Looking in from the outside, just kind of looking at the titles of the papers and looking at what was happening around that time with you, uh, I can see you had this strong interest in skill and Mm -hmm. automatic processes to do with skill as well. And you'd already started to look at things, even back then from the perspective of ageing, that was kind of quite striking. I think Dietrich mentioned that when he produced you the day as well. So not everyone finds a research topic quite straight away, quite, quite so early. So was it something particular, did you fall into it, or was it something that kind of you got under your skin and got you very interested from the beginning? I, yeah, I think I just fell into it when I first started graduate school. The first projects I was working on were with older adults, okay. and they were skill acquisition studies. And so the older adults would come in for five days, ten days, an hour a day, and yeah, you yeah. really got to know them. And I've yeah, been yeah. close to older adults in my own family, and yeah. so I just really enjoyed it for, right from the beginning. I remember when I first started doing research, we had a participant pool. And so we ended up, by default, having a lot of people who were available during the day, tended mm-hmm. to be older people. And, and they were always really uh, conscientious oh, participants. Yes. Yeah. They were great to work with, you know, always, always on time. Always, <laughs> Often uh, early, actually. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so when you kind of fell into that work, was there something about the ageing cognitive system that... You know what kind of that that kind of uh, fascinated you in, in that respect because that's kind of the theme, isn't it? Through a lot of the stuff exactly. That you're so how people learn new things, and I think you know even today there are these negative um, perceptions about aging. Yeah, you know, yeah. old expressions: you can't teach an old dog new tricks and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. And so really early on, we started to see: well, yes, you can teach older adults new things. Yeah, maybe yeah. it takes them a little bit longer. Maybe they learn it slightly differently. And yeah. so it was understanding that was what got me interested. When I sat in some of those sessions, the thing that struck me about cognitive performance in aging is that it's quite idiosyncratic. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. You know? Yeah, Huge individual differences. Yeah, and I think yeah. as designers, as human factors um, folks, we need to be aware of that, right? Because often you're trying to design for the average. Well, there's no such thing yeah. for younger adults, but even more so for older adults. There's more variety. And looking back in the day, I remember there was this kind of move towards what they call like designing for vulnerable, like yes, for vulnerable, vulnerable. But it's populations. kind of a little bit patronising, isn't it? It in is. It is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's partly my um, working with older adults for so long. I feel like I'm the champion for older adults. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, but what's funny is I'm now almost fifty-five, and so I'm getting there myself. I've been yeah. doing this for such a long I'm time. I'm not far away myself. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and speaking about that, and kind of like the passage of time and stuff like that, as well as looking at stuff from 
look, you look to stuff on memory, you look to visual search from an aging perspective around that time, but then you, you kind of start to transfer into tech usage. And kind of like, I mean, today, yesterday, you were talking about robots, and the first work I saw you were doing was about how oh, elderly people handle bank teller right, machines. Yes. Nothing ages you more like technology, does it? <laughs> that sort of way. And, and so... Was that around the first time you started to apply what you were doing experimentally to more everyday sort of situations? Yes, exactly. So I think, you know, even then in the early 90s, when you were having to learn something new, it was often learning to use a new technology. So we started looking at skill acquisition in the context of learning technologies. Automatic teller machines, online library catalogs, the World Wide Web, as we were calling it then. Yeah, there was a paper I saw about how older people conceptualise the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what they said about it then or how they thought about it? It was very interesting. They thought about things very linearly, yes. you know, and so they would go forward through screens and then feel like they had to go all the way back, like they didn't get the idea of hypertext we used yeah, to Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. We, we could link from anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So yeah, that, yeah. that was a foreign idea. bit of a perhaps a sweeping generalization but do you think that the tech industry as an industry probably unintentionally marginalizes elderly elderly users and I say that because I think my perception of that industry is that there's a lot of young people involved it's innovative and forward-looking by its very nature what they know I mean what's your take on that kind of dynamic I think it's probably a a little bit of both, right? So certainly, as you're saying, that new technologies are innovative and being developed by, generally, young people. Um, But I don't think there's an intention to say, well, this should only be used by young people. No, I don't think so. I think that's just how how it evolves. And I know when I'm teaching, um, students get very excited about designing for older adults. So I give them that. And then then they think about, so here are the challenges... They think, oh, I'm going to help these poor old people, yeah. right? And so here, I bring in older adults in my class right now. I have a panel of elders. And so older adults come and interact with the students mm. and give them feedback. And then they start to learn. Older adults are, are people, right? They have yeah, yeah. experiences and, and variety of, of interests in technology. So to the second part of your question, I think... Sure, some older adults decide, well, I'm perfectly happy doing it the way I've always done it. Mm. But young adults are like that too, right? So, you know, it's not unique to age. I mean, this kind of dynamic that I'm talking about, it reaches a crunch point, and you've obviously recognized this in your work, when we start to talk about technology and design for things that are used by the elderly, Mm -hmm. whether it's medical devices, whether it's warnings on medication. So do you think there's a greater awareness of the user needs for the people developing those sorts of technologies that they're kind of keyed into their demographic I think so I think they're starting to pay more attention to it and and to recognize that there are differences in the capabilities and limitations of of older cohorts um, and experience one of the things that I don't think um, many companies pay enough attention to is instructional support yeah, um, and, and, and engaging and teaching people how to use the technology. 
I saw a lot of his stuff looking for the titles and sort of stuff about warnings mm-hmm. and how to convey warnings. Now, is that general human factors sort of stuff or was that specifically about certain... Was it about like medication warnings or was it about just warnings in general? That sort of it thing? was warnings in general yeah, and looking okay. at um, understanding icons, for example, and yeah. what, the, what the visuals are supposed to represent. Yeah, yeah. And just assuming that everybody understands what the warning is intending to portray. Yeah. People of all ages. We were sat on the, uh, uh, the train yesterday just looking at... Um, there's a little warning that basically says your dog should have a muzzle on it. And we were discussing how many other things it could have been just from looking at it. So <laughs> it's just it is, from the picture, yeah. Yeah, just from the picture, yeah. It's just hard to sometimes capture everything. And it's kind of quite culturally bound as well, isn't it? The exactly. And even though there are standards, you know, yeah. the international standards for warnings, people don't necessarily know what they represent. There's a whole world of this when people start to drive abroad and look at the signs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah that, that's kind of interesting. Now, a, a phrase that pops up uh, through your work, and I didn't really understand it, so I'd like you to explain it to me. Uh, geron, geron technology? Yes. No, what, what do you mean by that? What, what, does that, what is that? Is that a, a subject? I, guess, I see there's a journal dedicated to there it. There is, and this is actually a European, started in the, the Netherlands, European organization yeah. to bring people together who were doing aging and technology design. So yeah. they coined the term Geron technology. So right, there's okay. a conference, there's a journal, um, and it's a very nice meeting, much like this one, yeah. smaller in scope. But one of my students told me this past year, he was so excited being at the meeting. He said, because sometimes I go to human factors meeting and they don't know as much about aging. Or I go to yeah. a gerontology meeting, they don't know much about human factors and technology. And he said, this is the meeting that brings everything together that we do. So it's a great meeting. Yeah. It's like I was saying to you earlier, it's nice when people find a home. Yes, exactly. So there's all these little satellite sort of things. And you only get that unique combination of people right. there. As and this is very international in scope, and yeah, so yeah. and it's only every other year, like the one you were talking okay, about. Okay, yeah, sure. And so it's nice because you get to know people, and my students got to know people, and then maybe visit them in yeah. Japan or in the yeah. Netherlands or Germany. Oh, yeah, so you make a network. Yes, yeah, exactly. Sort of thing. And is it really design-led that kind of meeting? Would you say? Yeah. Yes. So it's very much about the design of technology. It's all about technology for older adults. And um, now, one thing I thought from looking at watching you speak yesterday and also in your work you talk uh, about using technology to support functional independence mm-hmm. uh, which is a nice phrase but it kind of for me it kind of I think is, is that self-care just basic self-care or is it much broader than that I mean it, it seems to be quite broad in the way that you described it the other day so what would you say as like Functionally, what is functional independence for, for an older person would you say well I think it's a great question because the, uh, going back to our conversation about individual differences, I think it's very personally defined. Yes. You know, what is important to me, to my quality of life? What is What are the things that I want to be able to do? Yeah. And so I think trying to use technology to support what people's personal goals are and helping them figure out what their motivations are, yeah. that's the way we like to think about it. So it's very broad then, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yes. And, you see, this is another thing that struck me with one of your slides yesterday. I think when you were talking about functional independence, you showed a slide fairly early in your presentation, I think it was a list of bullet points, and it was basically what technology could do for an ageing population Mm -hmm. or an elderly user. And and really, it seemed to me to be a design perspective to maximise the quality of life. Uh, I think that's a good phrase, yeah. You know, that's what you're doing. But... I think we'd all like that, wouldn't we? I, don't, I mean, the, the, the attributes of the technology you were describing, I thought, well, you know, I mean, 
I'd have liked that 20 years ago. I'd like that now, you know. Sure, and, and you know, it's funny because sometimes the things we develop are useful to yeah. um, somebody who just happens to be busy or, or somebody with children or somebody who's in a dark environment, you yeah, know. Yeah, and, yeah. and so it can accommodate lots of other people. Yeah. Why it's uniquely helpful for older adults is because our needs do change as we get older. And so they have some unique needs that we're trying to support. I understand that thing about the unique needs and why you would kind of tune it in that sort of way. But it seems to me that because of that, you're getting into a model of technology which works for everybody. Oh, yes, I agree. And that's, and that's a good thing in its, in its own right. And thinking about technology in the very broad sense that you do, about how does it serve people's goals, you know, rather than does it make people more productive? Does it right. make, you know, you're kind of taking a much more of a holistic view, which I think is... Uh, Good for everybody, mm-hmm. I think, really, you know. I agree. I think we're kind of aware of this in human factors, but it's a good perspective for anyone doing human factors work to kind of have. You know, when they're, when they're faced with a design situation or some of the stuff I do where you're developing technology that don't exist yet, and then you have to kind of anticipate, you know, what people want to get out of them, you know, stuff Exactly, like and I think that's why I like to have these, these frameworks for design that, you know, the one I showed yesterday for human-robot interaction, yeah. it's not specific to aging. It's if you're if you're designing something, you need to think about the person, the robot, the task, the yeah, context, yeah. you know, yeah. and and I try to encourage my students to think that way in in, in a more holistic way. Yeah, and it, it did make me think. I wonder if the in respect to understanding. I mean, I know you're doing a lot of work on understanding technology acceptance right. by by all, all groups, but is there a real distinction between the process of technology acceptance for the elderly versus? younger people? I don't think so. I I think that um, the weightings of factors might differ for younger and older adults. So, um, you know, maybe ease of use is more important to older adults than... Mm -hmm. But but I'm not even sure. You know, I think the the key is usefulness, right? That's that's number one. Do I see a benefit? Mm -hmm. Then do I think I can use it? And, you know, other things that come from there. So I think the factors in the model, so to speak, are going to be the same. Yeah, yeah, I I thought so as well. And I I think, as you can see, what I'm kind of driving towards really is that a lot of the things that you're doing, say, in general general technology are are applicable, you know, more more broadly, Mm -hmm. I think, really. Now, the kind of irony is is that you mentioned this early on there's a kind of a stereotype of, uh, of older people being resistant to technology and you know being the last ones to get the latest gizmo or so on but the way that things are going now we've got this it's a little bit paradoxical in a way that um, elderly pop- elderly users find themselves now right at the cutting edge of technology robotics smart homes yep. <laughs> artif- artificial life and, 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 and automation right is that you know the really they are uh, Seen as being a key demographic mm-hmm. for the, for those kinds of technologies, so well, two things about that really. First of all, and this is something that you must have noticed over your career, is that when you're designing and working for uh, an elderly population, they're changing all the time. The elderly people of now will not be the same as elderly people in twenty years Correct. in the future. Correct. So, do you think? Uh, do you think for you as a researcher, that's an issue that you know the generations? are moving on as the area is moving on? Is that something you're kind of aware of and that you 
after factoring? Does it make a difference to the way you approach your work? Oh, yeah. I think it's important because we know that technology experience influences your attitudes and your ability to use new technology or your willingness to use new technology. Yeah. So that experience yeah. is, is really important. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing to keep in mind is people coming 25 years after us... Who knows what technology they'll be interacting exactly. with, right? The technology is always advancing, and so there's always going to be new technologies yeah. that we'll have to figure out how to adjust to. But I think the weighting of those factors that you talked about before may, may change, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that, you know, I probably wouldn't have a problem with a robot doing something for me, but I probably have quite high expectations, you know, compared to, say, an earlier generation of people who have different issues with that sort of right, thing. Right, right. You know, like that. And I think that may be the issue, is that the future older users will, you know, we've become, well, we've become very used to having technology that works quickly yeah, and, and accurately. Expectations. And, and is everywhere. Yes, yes, of course. thing I, I noticed with the talk you did the other day, you were talking yesterday, just kind of some background, about human-robot interaction and you emphasised the importance of context. And what your work seemed to show is that anthropomorphic robots, or robots with faces, and, and a, a humanoid, they were good for certain types of tasks, whereas things that obviously didn't have faces were good for other sorts of tasks. I just want to say a little bit for people who went to the talk yesterday about what those differences were. Sure. So we asked people to, and this was just their perceptions of yeah. what they would want a robot to look like yeah. that was doing tasks for them. And if the robot was going to be doing more service types of tasks, yeah. cleaning or or you know doing laundry and things of that nature, they actually preferred it look more mechanical. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't doing anything that social but if it was a more social task or an interactive task mm. they preferred it to look more humanoid was the preferences that we found in so what story. kind of interaction tasks are we talking about like so the examples that we gave them were um playing a game having a conversation teaching you something yeah um so socially interactive tasks or um, helping you make financial decisions, so more um, intelligent, intelligence required, those kinds of tasks. And okay. that's where they preferred the more humanoid. I, I think there's two things with that, really. Uh, I think, again, I may be wrong about this, but I think uh, having something that would do menial tasks for you, uh, that looks like a, a, looks like a device, really... Is, is probably less uncomfortable socially. Yes, exactly. I think the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So yeah. it's kind of like almost like a throwback to the days of butlers and slaves and stuff like that. Or, and also people wanting to do it for the... They don't have the idea of someone else doing it for them. But now, I want to go back to the conversation about individual differences because yeah. some people preferred something that looked more mechanical to help them with personal tasks because mm-hmm. then they wouldn't feel like somebody was watching them. So we did find that, you know, with bathing or... uh, I'd rather it look more like a machine than a person. So we have to always remember that there were differences of opinion about things. And that's completely understandable. But when you start to move into things that are anthropomorphized, that look more like artificial life forms, especially when they have a face and a voice, people find it very difficult to know what to expect. 
it, it is very difficult to know what to expect, right? Because they're behaving somewhat like other humans, but not completely. And, you know, that's the value. One of the robots that I showed yesterday, the Paro, that's a seal. Yeah. One of the reasons the developer chose a seal as opposed to a dog or a cat was yeah. because people don't have expectations about that particular animal. Yes. It's a safer bet exactly. in some sort of ways. Because really, when you're dealing with a, a, an artifact, something with a face, you've got that uncanny uncanny kind of valley sorry uncanny valley barrier to get through uh, and if you get through that then I guess you can start to sort of like build a relationship in, so as you would do with another agent or something that's a kind of human on the concern is that if the system fails or doesn't behave as expected uh, you could almost kind of feel betrayed you can almost feel you know the sort of anger or, or frustration that you would feel with another person right. Yeah, or somebody came up to me after my talk yesterday and asked, what happens when it doesn't work anymore or effectively dies, right? Yes. I'm, I'm doing quotes in yeah, the air yeah, here. Yeah. And he said, well, do we have a burial, right? If, if it's something that somebody has come close to. And I, I said, it's a, a very interesting question. I had not thought about it. Yeah, yeah. And I can see that if you mm -hmm. build a relationship with a piece of technology. Yeah. And you only need to see... See, it doesn't have to be anthropomorphised. The relationships people have with their phones as, as a starting point. Yeah, yeah. Now, no one's burying their phone yet, but they do feel somewhat bereft if that thing is not there true, with them. True, true. And, you know... And I wonder if... Uh, I don't know if in some of the work that you've done... I know you've got a smart house facility that you were working with. Mm -hmm. Was that at Georgia? So at Georgia Tech, yeah. we had the Aware Home, and yeah. at the University of Illinois, we're building a new one called the Life Home. Okay. Which stands for Living in Interactive Future Environments. Okay. And so I just wonder about the thing about virtual assistants, where you've just got, you know, kind of like the HAL from 2001, yes. where it's just a voice. Whether that's an easier thing to interact just with a voice rather than with the whole thing, you know? Well, quite a few years ago now, we looked at that at Georgia Tech where we just had kind of the voice from above in the house. Yeah. People did not like that at all. They oh, really? wanted something to interact with, like a point of contact, even if it were just a screen, right? Yeah, they just yeah. didn't like the, you know, feeling like it's all around them. But that was, you know, a good 10, 15 years ago, so that might have changed. But um, in some of the work that you're doing, uh, privacy and data collection must be, ma I mean, data protection must be massive issues. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and I think that's something that a lot of us are really focusing on, both the privacy part and the security part, and being aware of who who gets to see the data, how are they being stored, what's being collected, yeah. and being able to control that. You know, in my environment, I want to be able to protect that. Yeah, and one of the talks yesterday, just before your talk, was talking about social metaphors mm -hmm. in automation. Mm -hmm. And the idea of automation as a butler came up. And one thing that struck me about that, I hadn't thought of it before, he talked about the butler having dignity in the way, but actually that's wrong. What the butler does is it gives the person dignity ah, by okay, being discreet yes. and so on. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the thing with this technology. It's kind of like, how do you help people while preserving their dignity at the same yes, time? Yes, I like that way of phrasing it. You can see all kinds of ways to do it badly, but as usual, doing it well is, is a little bit difficult to kind of grasp, first of all. Um, so I'm going to wrap up in a minute because I've already kept you a little bit later than I meant to. So, one of the striking things you showed yesterday was the Pardo, where Pardo's a, a robotic version Paro. of the, Paro, P -A -R. Sorry. Yep. 
Paro is uh, a robot. We don't want to get his name wrong. He might get offended. Yeah, I know. I've written it down wrong here. Uh, he's a, so he looks like a, he's a baby harp seal. Yes. Is it okay? And as we said before, this is a, a simpler relationship in a way. You know, uh, I guess not everyone can have a pet. It seemed to me like it was almost right. fulfilling because mm-hmm. this is a, not a functional robot. This is a robot that's there to provide comfort and uh, an emotional relationship. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, so it's, that did come up, you know, is that this would be if I couldn't have a pet or for people who live in a place where pets are not allowed, yeah. that this might provide some of that similar support. Yeah, yeah. And you showed a very striking video of a guy bonding mm-hmm. with, uh, with the robot when, when people weren't in the room. Now, we should probably know there's been some writers in sort of like, well, not mainstream, kind of like HCI people as well. People like Sherry Turkle were talking about, you know, we're losing the ability to communicate because of technology. There's one concern that's been raised. And one thing, and I think it's a phrase she came up with, was artificial intimacy was a phrase that she came up with. So how do you feel about that? Do you think it's, you know, what we saw the other day with the guy bonding with the, with the little robotic baby seal? Uh, there was an intimacy there. It was, it was a kind of quite a tender scene, wasn't it, really? Um, do you think there's dangers of artificial intimacy? Do you think it, it, you can see negative consequences of that? I suppose, but I don't, I don't feel as negative about it as um, others do. I've, my, my feeling is, what is the harm if it's making somebody feel good at that moment, yeah, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. that... You know, when we have, we joked when we were first working with the Paro, if we were having a stressful meeting, we'd pull out Paro and put it on the table because <laughs> you couldn't help but smile, you know, to yeah, have it, yeah, to have yeah. it around. And, yeah. and so what? If it reduces uh, anxiety or stress, you know, I don't really see the harm in it. Now, I think you could probably carry this out to further conclusions. One thing we're always um, make sure to emphasize is we don't mean for technology to replace people no. in any way, no. right? It's an, it's a way to augment what, what other people can do. And mm. just one other note about the PARA, where it has also been useful is as a point of conversation. So in um, assisted living communities, for example, I have PARA on my lap, you come up, oh, what's that? And, yeah. and then we have something to engage and to talk about. And they also found that when grandchildren are visiting sometimes it's hard to communicate with an older person they don't know what to say but they have this thing that they can bond yeah. over yeah at my university there is a project on dementia care and i went to one of the workshops one time out of curiosity and one thing they produced it was a tablet mm-hmm. and it was basically it's called met house of memories and it basically showed uh, old photographs of the area of the geographical area and I sat, it was really interesting, I sat with, um, in a group of people, one of whom was a guy with Alzheimer's with his, with his wife, who was his carer. And they would press a button and they would see something from many years ago. And they just told you all these stories. Yes, it just provoked exactly. social communication. And, and that was rewarding for them and rewarding for me yeah. as well. You know? And it relates to one of the other talks at this conference about storytelling. And, yeah, yeah. and developing technology tools to enable older adults to tell their stories and have them be preserved, much like you're doing here. Yeah, yeah. And the, but the thing is, with I guess going back to this artificial intimacy kind of thing, I don't think it is an either, it shouldn't be an either or thing. Exactly. And personally, you know, I've been around technology long enough to see that it is going to get to the point where people are going to develop genuine a, a genuine connection with it. It's already started to happen. Sure. And 
that doesn't mean you know. I don't agree with this thing that that means that you suddenly you don't talk to anybody else. Right. I don't. I think we interact differently. You know, when when my mom was still alive, she just loved the idea of texting and sending pictures, yeah. and yeah. you know, and and even if she wasn't doing it herself, Wendy, text text your brother, do yeah, this, yeah, you know, yeah. and and it and it brought us together. We were not physically co-located, and she was able to be connected. Exactly. You know, so. I think there are many more positives, um, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't think about some of the no. unintended consequences or the potential negatives. It's important to have the conversation. Okay. So one final thing. So you, you were telling me earlier that you recently moved to the University of Illinois. Correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, and you just mentioned that you're setting up a lab mm-hmm. there as well. So. Is this what is it that you're most excited about that you're doing at the moment? Oh, so much. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, they, um, I was brought there to start a new program. So because of my experience doing interdisciplinary work, they wanted somebody who could um, really spark the area of aging, health, and technology. Okay. So I'm building a new program. Um, we're getting ready to start a new master's program in health technology. Yeah. And so I have research, I have teaching, and just the community there is amazing. All of the people that I'm meeting and connecting with um, you know, folks at the university, folks in the general community. So it's Good. a really exciting place to be right now. And I think what's nice as well is that, because I said because I did a little bit of research, you can see the trajectory of mm-hmm. where you picked up all these things. And I'm sure you didn't mean to, but you've kind of ended up in the zeitgeist in a way, haven't you, with social robotics? That's right, and it just worked out, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And part of the reason it started when I was at Georgia Tech, some of my colleagues in computer science had submitted a proposal to do work with older adults in this aware home, this yeah. new research facility that they had. And one of the reviewers actually said, you need some behavioral scientists on your team. You need some human factors on your team. And I had just moved to Georgia Tech, and they said, hey, you want to join us? And so ever since then, I've been working in this interdisciplinary field, and it's fascinating. You have to learn a new new approaches and different cultures. You know, yeah, engineering yeah. has a different yeah, culture than traditional psychology does. Yeah. And so it keeps me, keeps me young because I'm always learning new things. I think that's a good thing. And I think the thing that comes across from what you've just said, and other people have said something similar to me in these chats, is that you've got to be opportunistic in a mm-hmm. way. You've got to, you know, rather than planning, you take, yes. you know, you, you find something that fascinates you and you jump into it, you know. So. And that's exactly the advice I, I met with a young woman at um, the HFES meeting last week, and yeah. she was trying to find her way and wanted advice. I said, Exactly what you just said. Yeah. Find what makes you excited, what's fascinating to you. Great. So I think that's a positive note to end on. Okay, so very thanks good. thanks very much, Wendy. <laughs> Thank you. This was fun. So that was me and Wendy Rogers talking about her work and her career. As usual, I'll put some of the notes on the website. The website is physiologicalcomputingoneword.com and I'll also try and link to some of the things that we discussed during our conversation. I hope you found that interesting and thanks very much for listening.